Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30 this morning. Last week, we looked at verse 28, and I shared with you that there are times that the Lord uses your suffering for someone else's benefit. In other words, your pain, their gain. As was supremely the case with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I said that as we approach Romans 28, we have to rise above this egocentric notion that God's highest and chief end is working things out in your life the way that you determine are good. Today, I want to add another layer to that as we continue to meditate on Romans 8.28. I think it's important because it is a deeply personal verse, but it's also frequently taken out of context and misapplied and misunderstood. And so as we continue to meditate on that, I want to add one more layer. I think it behooves us to better understand what it means by good. So everything works together for the good. I think it behooves us to understand what it means. Good. What is good? A man from our church this week suggested that anything that draws us nearer to Christ, I think we got some chatter back here. Is, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell if he was answering my question of what is good or not. <laughs> huh? Oh, is it over? It's almost over. <laughs> it's almost over. Yes. Yes. All right. So a man from our church this past week in response to my sermon, he said, Brian, anything that draws me nearer to Christ is good. Anything that draws me nearer to Christ is good. And therefore suffering in itself is good. The visual that comes to my mind is a person uh, tossed around by the crashing waves at a cliffside. I want, you, I want you to envision this. A person is there at the cliffside and the, the waves are battering back and forth and he's being tossed around. Can you see it? The waves are pushing him into the rocks Except in this illustration, Jesus is our rock. Jesus is our rock of refuge. And the waves, which are so frequently associated or illustrated uh, as hardship, those waves are continually pushing us into the rock of Christ, teaching us that we have to cling to Jesus for dear life. On the other side of the waves is smooth water. Can you see it? You can see, you can see the, the cliffside and the waves, and they're pushing against the rock, and just beyond the waves is smooth water. And how often we long for that smooth water. But that smooth water carries us out to sea. The waves of tribulation are pulling us back to Christ. And anything that pulls us back to Christ is in itself good. Amen? 
Let's read the passage here, and then we'll pray, then we'll jump in. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. And Lord, right here, right now, it is easy to, to say those words that anything that draws me nearer to Christ is good. It's, it's easy to say that. It's easy to agree with that. But Lord, I have I've felt the waves and we have felt the waves. And they're no fun. But Lord, they do cause us to cling to Christ. They do remind us that we are not independent. They remind us that we need Jesus every day. And though we, we look at the smooth water and we long for that, Lord, we know that what is good is that we are clinging closely to Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to rest in the assurance that you are working everything for good. You're using it all. And you're making us more like your son. And you're preparing us for the day of glory. Lord, help us to wait for you. In Jesus' name, amen. As I stated last week, Romans 8.28 is not an isolated text. It's set in a context. It's set in a context of verses 26 through 30. And really it helps us if we understand that the broader context is really 18 through 30, which forms an inclusio of glory. An inclusio is like an envelope. It begins with glory and it ends with glory. It, Romans 18 begins with glory, looking at future glory. And Romans 8.30 ends with that coming glory. So that's the context. That's the broader context it's a glory that we eagerly wait for, but while we wait, we know that we're going to endure hardships. That is the reality of life today in what is known as the already, not yet. Jesus has already come, and yet we wait his second coming. The kingdom of God is already established, and, and yet we await the full establishment, the full consummation of God. We already experience salvation, and yet we wait for the fullness of our salvation. We know that glory is coming, but while we wait eagerly, we are going to endure hardship. We have the assurance that while we wait, that the glory that's coming is far superior, not even worthy of comparing to the suffering that we experience in this life. And we know that everything that we experience in this life is being worked together for good. Verse 29 and verse 30 helps us understand why we have such assurances. Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God's purpose in our lives, listen carefully, God's purpose in our lives is not to make us comfortable. It is to make us conformed. 
God's purpose in our life is not our comfort, but our, con- our conformity to Jesus. He is bringing us into likeness with Christ. Romans 8.29 should serve as a handrail, a guardrail, to keep us from taking verse 28 off track. Whenever, you're, whenever you are uh, thinking about Romans 8.28 and you're meditating on that, trying to make sense of that, just go on ahead and read verse 29 and keep on reading to verse 30. That's the guardrail. That helps you understand what exactly it means that everything is working out for good. You are being conformed to the likeness of Christ. That is God's purpose in everything that happens in your life. He is making you more like Jesus every moment of every day. He's developing us. He's developing in us the obedience of Christ. Hebrews 5 reminds us that Jesus experienced difficulties until his time was complete and his preparation was complete and he was able to go to the cross as a perfect substitute for us, fully aware of human frailty and human weakness. If Jesus' life was marked by preparation of suffering, it should not surprise us that we, as his children, who have been predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, will follow the same pattern of life. Doesn't that make sense? If this is the pattern of Jesus' life, suffering until completion and then glory, that the pattern of sonship is suffering until completion and then glory. Why should we be surprised? The, the whole thing is, is being made in the likeness, in the image of Jesus, being conformed to Christ. And the pattern of life for Jesus was suffering and then glory. And what do we want? We want comfort and then glory. Some people say we want the crown without the cross. The pattern of sonship is that we are prepared for glory by our suffering. We should not be surprised at this. Is it difficult? Undeniably. But we should not be surprised. It should not take us off guard. The Lord is preparing us to enter into his glory the way Jesus was prepared to enter into glory. Paul says God foreknew us in verse 29. In scripture, when it says that God knew someone or some group of people, it's more than cognition. In Amos 3, 2, it says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, is God saying that he had no cognitive awareness of any other family on the face of the earth? You only have I known of all the families on the earth. Did God have no awareness of any other family than Abraham and Jacob and Isaac's? Israel's, right, right, the, no, he, he, what is he saying? This word no here is full of emotion. Why are they being punished? Because he had cognition of them? No, 
because they rejected the God who rescued them, the God who provided for them, the God who loved them. So what did it mean that God knew them? It means that God loved them, God provided for them, God protected them, God rescued them. God's knowledge of a people or of a person is affectionate, provisional knowledge. In other words, it could be said, not only did God foreknow us, but God foreloved us. Paul says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, I want you to follow this line of reasoning. If we love God, we are known by God. And we know because of 1 John that if we love God, it's because God first loved us. So follow with me. If we, if we love God, we're known by God. And if we love God, it's because God loved us first. And therefore, if we are known by God, it's because we were loved by God. You following with me? If we love God, we're known by God. If we love God, we were loved by God first. If we love God, or if we were known by God, we were loved by God. God's knowledge of us is affectionate, not simply cognitive. We were not only foreknown, we were foreloved. Paul makes this even more explicit in his letter to the Ephesians. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. So to be foreknown is to be foreloved. It is to be predestined. Predestination is the divine determination that a person will be conformed to the image of God's son, that is, to be made a child of God. The Bible says that in your fallen state, in your sinful state, you were at war with God. You were at enmity with him. Ephesians 2, 1 through 4 makes it very clear that you were dead in your sin and a follower of Satan. That's a pretty strong statement about your condition before Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Before Christ, you belonged to the domain of darkness. You were enslaved to darkness. That's your spiritual condition before Christ. There's nothing that you could do in your fallen state that could affect your salvation. We're completely dependent upon the Lord for our salvation. Now, to be clear, at our conversion, we do make a, a conscious decision to put our trust in Jesus. No one forces us into faith. This is not coercive. It's not manipulated. We're not forced into it. But scripture teaches that God moved 
first. God moved first in your life regarding your salvation. You responded in faith. Let's talk about the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. First, you were dead in your sin. You were at war with God. You belong to the kingdom of darkness. That is the spiritual state of man. uh, Paul says that none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. Somehow in, in, in our pride, we imagine we are the exception. The world was lost, the world was dark, but I have always loved God. That, that is not true. That is not true. Scripturally, you were in the kingdom of darkness, you were following the prince of the power of the ear, you were dead in your sin, you were at enmity with God. And then, and I love this revised hymn, which I just found out was only revised about five years ago by John Piper. It says, without warning, desire, or deserving, I found my pleasure, my treasure in thee. Great is thy faithfulness. We've seen that so much here that I just thought that was the original, <laughs> the original language. But I love it. Then without warning. So you're, you're, you're dead in your sin, and then without warning, desire, or deserving, suddenly Jesus becomes your treasure. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Not great is my faithfulness. I think Piper has it exactly right. You see, many people would imagine, they may not say this, but they might believe it. You are a Christian, why? Great is my faithfulness, Lord, unto thee. Why am I saved? Because I am faithful. The Bible teaches something very different. Why are you saved? Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. The Holy Spirit, at some point, gave you spiritual life when you were dead in sin. We have an AED right outside of our walls, right over here in this, in this room. There are no instructions for self-application of an AED. Do you know why? Because dead people can do nothing to affect their life. In the same way, you were dead in your sin, and the Holy Spirit gave you life. And what he did was he revealed to you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're walking about your happy, merry way, and all of a sudden, Jesus is your treasure because you realize that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is your only hope for salvation. 
Look at this interchange between Jesus and Peter in Matthew 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. This is a supernatural revelation to you, Simon. You are blessed. Why? Because God the father has shown you who I really am. You would expect this, this right confession from Peter would elicit Jesus saying, you are really smart. You are really faithful. You are really wise, Peter. No, he says you are blessed because God has revealed to you my true identity as the Christ. Now, at some point in your life, if you are saved, you have come to realize that Jesus is the Christ, your only hope of salvation. Now, you might have heard the gospel once and believed. Or you might have heard the gospel a thousand times before you believed. But at some point, the Holy Spirit gives life to your dead spirit and causes you to see, to recognize that Jesus is the Christ. And suddenly that that gospel call that goes out far and wide that is often heralded from this pulpit or from many pulpits across the country or on the radio, that, that, that call that goes out far and wide suddenly became a very personal and effectual call on your soul. I chuckle every time I hear someone say, yeah, I came from this church and I never heard the gospel. Well, the reality is that maybe the gospel wasn't preached, but it's very likely that you simply were dead. And the gospel was preached a thousand times. And then finally, you hear it because the Holy Spirit has made you alive. It would not surprise me if people leave this church at some point and, and go to someplace else and say, well, I finally heard the gospel. <laughs> Impossible, right? It is very possible because in, until you are born again, until the Holy Spirit causes you to come to life, you don't hear the effectual call of God on your life. You can hear the words, but you do not hear the call. But at some point, if you're in Christ, you heard the call and you responded to the call. You were convicted and you were convinced that you are a sinner and Jesus is your only hope for salvation. So you were dead in sin, the Holy Spirit made you alive, showed you that Jesus is the Christ and you then respond. You turn toward Christ, you turn away from sin, which we call that repentance. You submitted your life to him. And Christian, you are currently following Jesus as Lord today. That is the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. That is biblical conversion. You were dead in sin. The Holy Spirit made you alive in Christ, showed you that Jesus is the Christ. He became your treasure, your pleasure, your hope, 
You respond to him in faith, you turn from your sin, and you are following him as Lord. That is biblical conversion. That is what it means to be born again, follower of Jesus. In our conversion, though, we're not made instantly like Christ. We're in a process. Some of you might be thinking, well, man, I sinned today, and I sinned yesterday. Welcome to the club. We are not made instantly like Christ, but rather we're in a process which Paul implies when he says that we are being conformed to the image of his son. Being conformed refers to both the immediate conversion as well as our sanctification. And I don't know why Paul doesn't speak of sanctification, but he certainly implies it. This whole section from Romans 6.1 to Romans 8.39 is about sanctification. But he implies it here in this word conform, conformity. We are made progressively like Christ, and the Lord disciplines us through suffering and hardship to learn obedience, to move into conformity to Christ. The moment that we are made alive together with Christ, we enter into a process of being conformed to the image of Christ. The Christian life is a, a life of continual transformation in, in the, into the character and the nature of Christ. Paul says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. One step at a time, one day at a time, and yes, undeniably, we take one step forward and sometimes two steps back. We, we so want there to be a straight line movement. Unfortunately, that old man, that old self that still raises up its head, causes us to cry out, wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this body of death is very real. But there is transformation in the Christian life. Do not fool yourself. I, I, I fear that perhaps in my emphasis on our hopeless estate and our continual need for Christ that I might cause some of you to think, well, this is just who I am and the way it's gonna be and Christ doesn't expect anything out of me in terms of holiness. Paul has already said very clearly, should we continue to sin that grace may abound by no means. There should be progress, there should be transformation. You should be deeply concerned if you're not seeing Christ uh, likeness in your life. You look back over the years and you say, I'm the same man that I always have been, then you're not in Christ. There is transformation. The Holy Spirit who dwells within you is changing you into the image of his son and he's using hardship and suffering in your life to do so. Not only are we transformed morally in this life, are we transferred into the character and the nature of this life, but we are also going to be transformed bodily in the resurrection. 
Paul once again says in Philippians, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. How many of you are anxious for that day when your body is glorified and made perfect? Amen. Amen. The aches and the pains and the the simple things that used to not bother me are now bothering me. And I'm like, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready for this glorified body. God's purpose in your salvation is that you would be conformed to the image of the Son of God so that, Paul continues, he might be the firstborn among many brothers, verse 29. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is, that Jesus would be preeminent among many brothers. That he would be the first. Not only in terms of, like the first in order, but the first in preeminence. That he would be highest. We are adopted as children of God and we are made co-heirs with Christ who is the glorious Son of God. John opened his letter with these beautiful words, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's a sentiment that said we're all children of God. What does the Bible say? It says that we were not children of God. We had, by faith... By receiving Christ, by believing in him, God gave us the right to become children of God, which implies that we were not before. What were we before? The Bible says we were children of wrath. We were at enmity with God. So what is salvation? There's many ways that we can describe it. The Bible speaks of it in many different ways. Citizens of a new kingdom, but chief among them, I think what is most pervasive, most, most prevalent in the New Testament is the concept of adoption into God's family. We were not God's children, and by faith we become God's children. This is why adoption is such a beautiful illustration of the gospel. Have you ever been to an adoption ceremony at a courthouse? It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. The judge sits there and he looks at this family and he says, do you forever promise to love this child as if this child were your own? To give them all the rights of any of your biological children forever. And the adoptive parents must agree. Yes, that is what we intend to do. Adoption is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. That is what the Lord does for us. What we do for children, God does for us. Those that were not his children, he makes his children and treats us as if we are his own sons. Verse 30 continues. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Now that brings us back to verse 28. This tethers us back to verse 
28, which speaks of those who are called according to his purpose, that God works everything together, that he works all, that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. We are called according to his purposes. God is working everything for the good of those who have been called. If you're in Christ, it is because you have been called. It's an effectual calling, not just an invitation. When God called light out of darkness, that was not an invitation. That was a calling, that was effectual. He is God. When God calls, creation responds. Some people in reform circles take this too far. They believe that there's no need to evangelize their neighbors. After all, how can we know who is called? Well, we don't know who's called. So we treat every human being as if they're called, and we take the gospel to them, and we anticipate that the Holy Spirit will do what we could not possibly do, which is bring life out of death. What a joy that we are not responsible for convincing people to believe the gospel. It is not incumbent upon us to say the words just so that everyone would believe. What we are responsible is to speak the gospel and give a defense of the hope that is within us, Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. And we trust the Holy Spirit to work in their lives, to do what we could not possibly do, and what a joy that we get to be human agents in divine work. And those whom he called, he also justified. The term justification is a legal term. We've, we've been in that. We had the banners up. The, the justification banner had the, the gavel because it's a legal declaration. It's a final, definitive, authoritative verdict of righteousness. Those whom God foreknew and predestined to be conformed to the image of his son he called to himself, and those that he called to himself, he called into his family, he declared not guilty. I think it's good for us to be reminded of this. Once again, we've been out of it for a few months. We've been out of that justification for a few months. It's important for us to remember that our status before God is not guilty. Why? because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because he made him who knew no sin to be sin in order that we would become the righteousness of God. That is all, all of this that we've just read is written in the past tense because whatever the Lord determines, even that which is still future, is guaranteed to happen. After all, our God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. Amen? What he wills will happen even in the future. In, in fact, 
only in the future. I mean, God doesn't will something in reverse. He wills only in the future, and it will happen. Those whom God foreknew will come. Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago, and it was just as true about you and I, or you and me, 2,000 years ago as it is today. This text was was true about me 2,000 years ago, and it was true about you 2,000 years ago. It was simply a matter of time before it became our experience. If the Lord delays his return for another 10,000 years, this is true already for everyone who will come to faith in Christ. It's already true for them. In fact, it was true before the foundation of the earth was laid. You struggle with maybe 2,000 years. How about before time began, this was already true? Look at what Paul says. Remember Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This golden chain, as it's called, has one final link. Paul says, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. In the previous passage, Paul acknowledged that we wait eagerly for the glory that is to be revealed to us, the redemption of our bodies. That is what is known as glorification. It refers to a point in the future when we will be raised with Christ in the last days and our lowly body will be resurrected and transformed to be like his glorious body. We'll be glorified and we will share in the glory of Christ. Paul says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What a glorious day, amen? Don't we long for that day when Christ appears? and we will appear with him in glory. But here's the beauty. Just as our predestination seals our justification, it was true before the foundation of the world, it was true for us, it just now became our experience of reality, but it was true before the foundation of the world, just as our predestination seals our justification, so it does our glorification. Do you notice that Paul does not say, and those whom he justified, hopefully he glorifies. Do you observe that Paul wrote in what we still wait for and what the church has been waiting for for 2,000 years in the past tense? And those whom he justified, he also, say it with me, glorified, past tense. That is our assurance. The saints have nothing to fear. Why? Because God has willed that those whom he predestined, those those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And God's will, 
will happen. And Christian, you can be assured that God is working everything in your life at this moment to prepare you for that glory. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Theology check. Who began your salvation? Was it you? Or was it Jesus? The Bible tells us that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the one that, I don't want to rest on the assurance that I'm going to complete this race. That I'm going to complete what was begun. No, my hope is in Christ. He who began a good work in me, the author of my faith, is also the perfecter of my faith. Amen? God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great assurance. We wait eagerly for glory to come. And we know that our waiting is not in our hands, but in the hands of the one who chose us in Christ to be conformed to the image of his son. I want you to remember that the context of Romans 8 is security, is safety, is perseverance of the saints. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul built the rest of the chapter of Romans 8 upon this foundational truth. Since there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, there never will be. That is the assurance. Since there is now no condemnation for those that are in Jesus Christ, there never will be. You have nothing to fear, Christian, and it has nothing to do with your life. It has everything to do with the righteousness of Jesus, which God, by his grace, imputes upon you and gives to you as a gift. What a glorious truth that our justification, that legal binding declaration that we are not guilty, was predicated on God's foreknowing and predestining and calling, and it ends with our glorification. If we are justified today, if we stand right before God today by faith in Jesus Christ, it is because before the foundation of the world, God chose us in him, and he will glorify us with Jesus forever. Praise the Lord for God's plan for our redemption, which began with foreknowledge and ends with glory. 
If you are in Christ, you are safe from condemnation. You have been rescued from it. You have been set free from it. And if that has ever been true, it will always be true. The climax of our salvation is this full conformity to the image of the Son of God. We will be made like Christ, and he will be our preeminent big brother. What an amazing picture. What an amazing thought. And what a glorious day that will be. And until that great day, we cling to the rock of Christ, and we wait for him. Amen? Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Our hope and our assurance is not that we will endure and hold ourselves, but rather that you, Lord, will hold us. That you will perfect our faith. That you, Lord, will call us into that glorious day when we are made like Christ, finally and fully. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, Follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.